We'll be in Hebrews chapter 9 this morning. If you have one of the church Bibles, it's on page 945. My name is Peter Kroll. I'm the elder in charge of our preaching ministry. A person's conscience is a funny thing. My earliest memory of what I would consider my conscience involves a little orange newt I found when I was six or seven years old. I picked the thing up and I thought it would be fun to throw it as hard as possible into a brick wall at point-blank range. Far from being fun, it made me feel sick. I do not recommend cruelty to God's creatures. A little voice in my head informed me that I was a poor excuse of a human being. And that voice was right. I tried to cover my tracks so nobody would know of my dark deeds, but I still just couldn't Stand the time spent waiting for others to return to my location and potentially catch me red-handed. What about you? What sort of run-ins have you had with your conscience? And what is it like to wait for the eventual return of King Jesus? Does your conscience inject your waiting with anxiety or distress at what he will find? Or does your conscience fill you with eagerness for his justice? Maybe your conscience still accuses you of things you have done. Maybe it reminds you of your past or of the secret desires you don't wish to speak about openly. Maybe your conscience gives you a clean bill of health for now. Regardless, our passage this morning in Hebrews chapter 9 has some really good news for you. Again, if you have a church Bible, we're on page 945. This chapter of the Bible will tell you that Jesus is the best thing for your conscience. Jesus is the best thing for your conscience for two reasons. He provides an eternal redemption and he promises an eternal inheritance. You see, if Jesus is your priest, nobody can take these things away. Your redemption, your inheritance. And these two things will have a profoundly cleansing effect on your conscience. Let me pray for our time in God's word and we'll dive into it. Our Father, please strengthen us. Help us not to suppress the voice of conscience, but to give it heed and look to Christ, our high priest, that we might satisfy the voice of conscience and satisfy your justice. Please strengthen us and give us ears to hear your word this morning. Please fill us with your spirit. 
We ask these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest. Amen. Now, the first reason why Jesus is the best thing for your conscience is because the redemption Jesus purchased for us is eternal. In order to grasp this point, we must dig deep into the Old Testament law of Moses. Are you ready? Hebrews chapter 9, verses 1 through 14. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second... Only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. But... When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal Redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Now, there are a lot of details in this passage because the author is trying to summarize for us the entire ceremonial law of Moses, the first five books of the Old Testament. But his main argument consists of three pieces. Okay, so understand how it boils down and it'll make sense. Jesus' redemption is eternal. 
Because he provides better worship in a better place. Those are the three pieces. That's it. All the detail, amid all the detail, that's all he's saying here. Jesus' redemption is eternal because he provides better worship in a better place. Now, the tricky part is to grasp what that means. And in order to grasp what that means, you've got to grasp the Old Testament system of worship. Let me show you why as I walk through our passage. In verse 1, he's referring to God's contract, his covenant with his people in the Old Testament. And the author reminds us that that first covenant had regulations for worship and for an earthly place of holiness. Okay, those are the two things he's going to talk about here. Rules for worship and holiness of place. He then expands on the place first in verses 2 through 5. And then in verses 6 and 7, he explains the rules for worship. Okay, so with respect to place, he describes the tabernacle that Moses set up, or the tent as it's called in verse 2. It had two rooms in it with certain pieces of furniture in each room. It had only one entrance from the outside, and that that doorway takes you into an outer room, a first room with a lamp and a table with bread on it. And then there's another uh, curtain doorway uh, going into a second inner room with an altar to produce a sweet-smelling cloud to cover the large golden box containing all of God's personal belongings. That's what he describes here. And then in verse 5, he says that, Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. What I think he's saying by that statement is that all of the details matter. He's not dismissing the details. We could study them and we could discuss them at great length. And in fact, if you would like more information on these details, I commend to you our church's sermon series on the book of Exodus. It's on our church website where... In the second half of the book, we walked through all of these details as they came up, as they were being built. Uh, Each of these things says something about what it takes for God to dwell with his people. But now, today is not the time to go into all those details. The main idea here is simply that the Old Covenant had a place for worship. It was this tent with its two rooms and all of its furniture. These things provided a place on earth where God could dwell with his people and they could come and enjoy a relationship with him. But beyond the place itself, we ought to consider the regulations for worship. It's the second thing he wants to address. And and what he means by that is what transpired in that place to enable God's people to worship him. You see, most people in Israel could not enter into that tent at all. They had to remain in the front yard where gifts and sacrifices were offered. But, verse 6 tells us, any priest could enter the first room of the tent. And verse 7, 
Only the high priest could go into the second room, and he could do that only on one special day each year. When he did, he had to offer blood to cover the sins of both himself and the rest of the people. He'd go in there and he'd splash the blood on stuff. If he tries to enter that second room on the wrong day or without the blood of a substitute, he dies. And the ritual described here in verse 7 is called the Day of Atonement. You can read more about it in Leviticus chapter 16. But what is the point? Why do we need to know about the place? Why do we need to know the regulations for worship? Verse 8, he says that as long as there is a temple in Jerusalem with two rooms... Because that first room, the outer room, is still standing. That means that there is no way opened into the holy places. In other words, he says there is no access to God's presence with his people. There is only, as long as these two rooms stand, there is only a hint or a shadow or a tease of God's presence. Verse 9, he says this is symbolic for the present age. What he means is that at the time this book was written, the temple was still standing. The curtain between those two rooms of the temple had torn in half on the day that Jesus died, showing that access was now granted, but by the time he writes this, the Jews had repaired that curtain and access to God's presence was once more denied to the people. But as he said in the last verse of chapter 8, don't worry, this system is obsolete, it will soon vanish. And the Romans did when they came and destroyed it in the year 70. The impact of all this comes at the end of verse 9. When gifts and sacrifices are offered in an earthly place with limited access to God... Those gifts and sacrifices cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Verse 10 says, The best those sacrifices can do is provide outward conformity to a ritual code. So under the old system, you can conduct worship in a special place, and that worship will clean you up on the outside. But it can't do anything for you on the inside. Your sin will still hound you and your conscience will continue to convict you. That's how things worked under the old system. But, but, verse 11 When Christ came along to be a new high priest, he changed all of that. He did not, verse 11, conduct his priesthood by entering the earthly temple in Jerusalem. He actually went into the true and original tent pitched in heaven. He conducted his ministry in a better place than the Jewish priests do. And in verse 12, we're told that he offered a better worship. He did not bring the blood of goats and calves. He brought his own blood. 
And here's the main idea of this entire section in verse 12. Because our priest Jesus conducted better worship in a better place, he secured an eternal redemption. Jesus offered himself once and only once, and it worked. The proof that it worked is that he doesn't have to keep doing it. It worked, and our sins were forgiven, and therefore, as verse 14 says, he has purified our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Do you get what this means? Because Jesus, your priest, offered better worship in a better place, you can be with God forever. If you belong to Christ Jesus, your sins cannot ever be held against you. The accusations of conscience can be done away with forever. You can be free of that inner prosecuting attorney who claims you are a miserable excuse of a human being. The blood of Christ splashed on the holy places in heaven speaks on your behalf. It bears witness to the inhabitants of heaven, including the Father himself, That you are a child of God. And that nothing can ever change that. You have been bought and paid for. Your redemption is eternal. How does this apply? Well, friend, if you do not yet follow Jesus Christ, I want you to know this morning that it is possible to cleanse your conscience once and for all. When that nagging voice speaks up to condemn you for the things you have done, it is probably speaking the truth. It is not healthy to suppress the voice of conscience. And what Jesus does is not suppress the conscience, he satisfies the conscience. You see, if that voice speaks up to condemn you, but you place your trust in Jesus, your king, and your great high priest, then there is another voice, that of God's Holy Spirit, who comes and who argues with the voice of conscience. And he shows forth the blood of Jesus Christ spilled once for all on behalf of sin and then splashed onto the heavenly tent to make it a welcoming and accessible place to God's children for the rest of time. You do not have access to God or to the satisfaction of conscience unless Jesus is your king and your master. So if you do follow Jesus and you trust him as your high priest, then you can now serve God with a pure and clean conscience. You don't have to worry about when the hammer will fall or whether you will get swept away in the coming 
judgment. You don't have to imagine God as wagging his finger at you, constantly disappointed. No, you have been rescued, you have been redeemed, you have been bought and paid for, and that redemption is eternal. The blood of Jesus decorates the heavenly tent for the rest of time. Friends, this isn't just a word picture. This is as real as it gets. The resurrected Jesus himself dwells there in that tent at the right hand of the throne of God. He dwells there bodily for the rest of time. You see, there is no more outer room to keep you out. There is only a single room testifying forever to your eternal redemption. And such an eternal redemption does wonders for your conscience. Now that would be wonderful enough to have a redemption that can't ever be brought into question. But our text doesn't stop there. It's one thing to have judgment and accusation removed from you, but how do you ever know that it really worked? Wouldn't it be nice to have a tangible and specific affirmation to signal your newfound security for your conscience? You know, something to remind yourself of on those days when the voice of accusation rears back up? Well, that's where he goes next. Let's talk about our eternal inheritance, starting in verse 15. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance. Since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites. But the heavenly things themselves, with better sacrifices than these... For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages 
to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. In this second half of the chapter, the main idea comes right at the beginning this time in verse 15. That which awaits the beneficiaries of Jesus' new covenant is a promised eternal inheritance. Now, the way an inheritance worked back in the ancient world was very similar to how it works now. You know, an inheritance, it's the thing you receive when your parents or your grandparents die. A person spends their life building up an estate, and when they die, they pass that estate on to their heirs in portions. That's what this text is saying that Jesus does. Verse 16, the author is suddenly talking about a will. Verses 16 and 17, it feels sudden to us, but it's really not sudden at all. You should know that the Greek word for will in verses 16 and 17 is exactly the same as the Greek word for covenant in verses 15 and 20 and so on. This one Greek word could be used in a variety of ways. We need two English words to capture the sense of it. But a covenant and a will in this passage are the same thing. Okay, Think of them as the same thing. They're very closely related concepts. The author's playing off them. Verse 15, he is the mediator of a new covenant. Verse 16, for where a covenant is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. What he's saying here is simply that an inheritance cannot pass on until the person owning it passes away. And that's exactly what happened with Jesus Christ. So those who trust in Christ and join his new covenant, his new contractual relationship, they receive a promised eternal inheritance in verse 15. But in 16 and 17, they can't actually get that inheritance unless the one who promised it dies. So in 18 to 22, he, he's referencing Exodus chapter 24, where the first covenant was activated in those copycat earthly places by means of constant death. Constant death. Constant reminders. But in verses 23 through 26, he says that the new covenant was activated not in copycat places, but in the real place, heaven, and it was activated by just one death. You see, sometimes people think of the Old Covenant or the Old Testament as being real and physical, and the new covenant is spiritual and invisible. But we don't get that idea from the Bible. We get that more from Plato. This text looks at the differences differently. The old covenant was only figurative. 
The one making the covenant didn't actually die. He had to kill an animal as a substitute to activate the covenant. And since it was only figuratively forgiving sins, the sacrificial deaths had to occur over and over and over and over again. But the new covenant is the thing that is real, not symbolic. Therefore, only one death had to occur since that death fully and finally activated the will, the last will and testament, so that the heirs could receive the inheritance. What is the point of all of this? You can know that your redemption is real and eternal because the Lord Jesus died, activating his covenant, his will, and passing on his full estate as your inheritance. So how does this apply? Friends, please stop trying to cleanse your conscience through good deeds or religious activity. It will never work. You can't silence the inner voice of accusation by attending more services or performing more rituals. And you will never do enough good deeds to balance out the sin you have committed. Instead, look to the inheritance that belongs to you because the Lord Jesus died. And that begs a crucial question. What is that inheritance? What is it that I should look to? What is it that we get after Jesus died that we couldn't have gotten before he died? The Old Testament people of God had the land of Canaan as their inheritance. It's constantly referred to as their portion, their inheritance. They lost that inheritance when they rejected God as their God. But what is our inheritance under the new covenant? Well, that's what the author ends on here. Verse 27, he states a general principle that all people die and face judgment. And then in verse 28, he applies that principle specifically to Jesus. Just like everybody dies and faces judgment, so Jesus himself died and he will one day face judgment. Although in his case, the judgment he faces is not the judgment brought against him. It is his own judgment to put the world to rights and to save his people from injustice. See, after death comes judgment. In his case, it's his own. And who will those people be? Those people that he saves from injustice. How can you tell who will be saved by him on the last day when he returns? Verse 28 says, He will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
Right here, friends, the author informs us of what our inheritance is. Do you see it? The thing we get now that Jesus has died is, what are we waiting for? Him. Jesus himself is our inheritance. We are those who are waiting for him eagerly. Now, if you're tempted to think that's lame and anticlimactic, come on, where's the inheritance? That's not the kind of thing I was hoping for. Where's all the fortune and glory? Well, friend, you need to go back to chapter 1 of this letter and remind yourself exactly who Jesus is. It is no small thing to say that Jesus is yours. That he is your inheritance. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature Jesus is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He created the world and he is the heir of all things. And when he is your inheritance, then everything that is his becomes yours. And you belong to his God and Father. So as a final application, let's consider your conscience right now. If you found out that Jesus was returning in five minutes, how would you receive the news of that development? Would you embrace the news eagerly? As the solution you've been waiting for all this time. Or would there be a nagging voice in your head that springs to life? Holy. Reminding you of the grave danger you are in. Rehearsing all the things you've left unresolved. Would you even feel as though Jesus' return would cut you off from experiencing something better that you haven't yet experienced in life? Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to wait for the Lord's, the Lord Jesus to return and to wait eagerly. In Hebrews, we've seen that Jesus is king and he is priest. Now we see that he's also your inheritance. So as you look ahead to his return, you ought not be racked with guilt, anxiety, distress, or disappointment. You can serve him now with a clear conscience because you wait eagerly for him to become fully yours then when he returns. He's already dealt with your sin and that of the world. Now you're just waiting for him to clean up all the undesirable effects of it. 
Your eternal inheritance is the Lord Jesus himself, your great high priest. He provides you with the assurance that your redemption is eternal. Your conscience is clean. Not just for a little while, but now and forever. Jesus is the best thing for your conscience. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, Lord, who are we that you would invite us into your tent, your presence, that place that has been decorated forever with the blood, the sprinkled blood of Jesus, our Lord, our King, our inheritance. Lord, may he be ours as you have promised. May we hope in him. May we eagerly wait for him with nothing to fear. And may we seek our hope in him. Thank you for granting us eternal redemption and eternal inheritance. Please cleanse our consciences as you have said. In Jesus' name, amen.